Uh, today we're starting a brand new five-week series, and we're entitling the five-week series, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Next week, we're going to have a video. We, we're trying to put it together this week. We're unable to do it. But next week, we're going to have a video where we um, hit the streets and ask different people from all over the spectrum, all over walks of life to ask. Uh, we ask them a simple question. Who do you believe God to be? Who is God? Who is he? What is God like? Is he kind? Is he compassionate? Is he mean? Is he violent? What do you believe God to be like? Because we understand that the spectrum of thought in our society is so wide, we thought it would be good to take a snapshot, to take a small sample size, and just to spend a couple of hours on Fort Lauderdale and, and on public college campuses and, and at the beach and just to get a sense of who people believe God to be. And if you were to spend that time personally doing the same exercise that we do, you would find the same results that we found. Which it turns out that a lot of people have a lot of issues with the Bible. A lot of people affirm it, love it, are, are, are diligent towards it, but a lot of people just have issues with it. And maybe more importantly, a lot of people have issues with God. And so you and I understand that there's kind of a vast um, spectrum of thought when it comes to people answering the question, who is God? For most of us, God is the creator of all things good, of all things beautiful and true. The God I read about in the scriptures and I see in the person of Jesus Christ is overwhelmingly positive and also necessary for my own human existence and my soul. But that's not the only viewpoint in a world full of viewpoints. Depending on what nation you're from, or what language you speak, or religion you were brought up in, or your church experience, your background, your, your culture, even your perceived so, uh, status in society, all of this affects the question, who is the Lord, or who is God? What is he like? Is he a he? Maybe he's a she. Is he one? Is he three? Maybe, as some of the Hindus believe, he's like 172. Does he live in all of us, in dwelling in us, or does he just live in, like, the trees? Am I God? Are you God? Is God personal or just like an energy force? Is he a state of being or a state of mind? What is he like? Is he kind or cruel, involved or aloof? Is he strict Uptight, or is he easygoing? Would he vote Democrat? Or would he vote Republican? Maybe he's a libertarian, I don't know. Is, is he still good for the world? If God, as atheists say, it just, maybe he's just an endless source of violence and hatred and bigotry and hypocrisy, who is God? Who is the one that we love while others hate? Who is the one we worship while some blaspheme? that we trust in while others fear, that we bow down to in some curse. Who is God? The 20th century writer A.W. Towser uh, made a powerful claim in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, I'm going to read the quote, it's in, in several phases here. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think when we think about God, this writer is saying, is primary, is paramount, cardinal, supreme. And, and why? Well, he goes on to describe it this way. He says, the, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, which I didn't even know was a word, um, fact, which is like warning or thing to, to be concerned about, fact about any, um, any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, 
but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He says what's most important to a man is not actually what he or she does. Instead, it's what we believe God to be like because he closes off the conversation really beautifully. And so so just get the tension here. It's not your gender, it's not your ethnicity, or your sexuality, or your family origin, or your race, or your culture, or your neighborhood, or your tax bracket, or your favorite sports team, or the college you attended, or, 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 the, or, or all of that, honestly, rolled all into one, means so much less than what you believe about God. This is the reason, he says. Were we to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. To put it another way, what you think when you think about God determines your fate. What you think when you think about God, determines how you will live and how you will breathe and how you will act to people who are far away and people who are nearby. It will determine the way you relate to your family members. It will determine the way you relate to your husband or to your wife. It will determine the way you work in your workplace and the way you serve in the places where you serve. And do you see where we're going here? See, see, what's interesting is that there is so much spectrum of thought about who God is, and it's obvious then that there is so much spectrum in the way in which we live. See, the ISIS terrorist who beheads the infidels and the prosperity gospel and the prosperity gospel preacher and the Westboro Baptist guy who pickets, you know, outside a military funeral and the Hindu sacrificing a goat to Shiva and the witch doctors throughout the Caribbean and the televangelists and the peace activists and the musicians who get on stage who live nothing like God tells them to and says, I want to give glory to God and the Catholic nun giving up everything to live a life of poverty. All of these men and women, all of them do what they do because of the way they think about God. The man who kills men does it because he believes, uh, certainly in Islamic countries, does it because he believes that God is asking him to do such a thing. And Christianity isn't exempt from that chaos either. You look back at the history of Christianity, you see the Crusades. Men and women who believed that God would have them go into nations and conquer and kill and pillage and destroy. See, if you think of God as racist, homophobic, mad at the world, that reality will shape you into a religious bigot. If you think of him as an American-worshipping military warmonger, you will be turned into that picture as well. If you think of God as kind of like a West Coast, educated, LGBT-affirming progressive, you'll become shaped into that stereotype of a person driving a Subaru with a coexist bumper sticker on the back of your car. If you think of God as a cosmic version of just a life coach and his whole agenda in life is to make you better, that will shape you into a self-help obsessed, I am David, I always slay the Goliaths, you know, the traffic is Goliath, my boss is Goliath, and I'm going to swing him down, and, and you'll become this egocentric cultural Christian. And I'm not saying that everything I just mentioned is totally, totally out of the question, but, but here's the problem. If what we think about God comes from what we think, we will always form God into the image of ourselves. If, you think, if what you think about God comes from what you think, you will always begin to form God into someone that looks just like you. 
and sounds just like you and loves just like you and, cha and challenges people just like you. And you can find any verse in the scriptures to support anything that you've ever thought that you could do, that you would be able to do or you would be able to think. And that's the way that we all function. It would be our desires or our opinion or our experiences and all those things would become the model or, or the picture of God that is placed in our hearts. You ever wonder why there's so many opinions about God? Well, the reason there's so many opinions about God is because there's so many people forming him into their image. There are seven billion, eight billion images of God. So what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do when what's most important in our life is to know who God is? What are we to do when, when, when it, we look at, at ourselves and we go, okay, I don't want to form God into the image of myself. I actually want to form a picture of God that's true and that's trusted. Well, what we do is we go to the source. See, this series is a, hopefully for some of us, is just a reset. Reset button. You know, maybe there's somebody watching today and, and you're like, I'm watching online and, and maybe you know somebody, or maybe it's yourself who's like, I know there's somebody in my sphere or maybe myself included is just not sure about God anymore. And I want you to take a moment. You can just press the share button, find exactly who to send it to and just send it off right to them. You can share it certainly on your page, but send it to somebody individually. If they're trying to figure out who God is, maybe they were in the faith and they walked away from the faith and maybe this is something to deal with. And certainly if you're here and you're thinking that this was good at the end of it, you can share it along as you, after you get home. But, but I want this to be a reset button, button a, a moment for us to pause and to be changed by the truth of God uh, displayed in the truth of God's word. To leave behind what we think and to embrace what he's like as he describes it. It's a time for us to wipe the slate clean and to start from the source because the starting point of all theology is the realization that we actually don't know God as well as we think we know God. But that we can if we do the, if we do the due diligence to make sure we're in a position to learn from him. And not from our own experiences, but to learn from him. And so all of us leads us to a discussion about this sermon series. And it brings us to the top of Mount Sinai with the prophet Moses and speaking to God himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And as you turn there, I want to set up the context. The entire series is going to be built around this text. Um, I'm super pumped about it, um, but I what I want to set up the story a little bit. In Exodus chapter 33, we get to eavesdrop on a conversation between God and Moses. Israel is a recently freed nation. They've been wandering in the wilderness, waiting for God to lead them into uh, the, the promised land, the land of Cana, um, or Cana, it depends how you want to pronounce it. But Canaan is, is this land that God has said, hey, I will give it to you. Um, but the people of Israel just seem to be sabotaging their own success. And honestly, that could be its own sermon, right? Like, uh, why do the people of God always sabotage our own success? Um, but, but anyway, they, 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 they complain, they rebel, and eventually Moses sensing um, God's attitude towards, um, Moses sensing God's attitude uh, towards, rather, Moses began to sense that God's attitude towards the people had begun to shift. He was getting angry at the people, and rightly so. They were kind of living like the worst, so Moses begins to have this discussion with God, and Moses starts asking God a really interesting question. He says, he says, hey, would you just agree to go with us? We don't want to go if you're not there. So God relents in his anger and just decides, yes, I will go with you. And then Moses asks this question. This is Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. He says, and Moses said, now show me your glory. In Hebrew literature, to speak of, of God's glory is to speak of his presence. 
So basically God says, you know, I will be with you is what he told Moses. And Moses says, okay, well then show me who you are. You say you're going to be with us, but then show me who you are. And God replies, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So the next morning, Moses gets up early, he climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai, and then we read one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible. Remember, this is God showing Moses who he is. This is not someone describing God. This is God describing God. Before I read it, the text we're about to show is the whole premise of this entire series. We're going to pick it apart word for word. We're going to strap it all the way down. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to ask you to memorize it with me. So we'll read it out loud every single Sunday until for the next, for the next five Sundays. And hopefully by the end of those five Sundays, you'll have at least, a, I don't know, a decent memory of this verse because it's so important. Here it goes. The Bible says he passes in front of Moses proclaiming, and this is what he proclaims. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And if you get creeped out by this last couple of lines, don't worry, we're going to get to it eventually. Let's try to read it all together. If you're at home, if you can do it with us, we're going to do it slowly. Ready? Here we go. The Lord, the Lord. Okay, we're going to do this together. Ready? One, two, three. The Lord, the Lord. It's like, what's that uh, music video thing? What was it called again? I don't remember. What was it? I don't remember. Okay, here we go. All right, all right, we'll do it together. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This verse may not seem like it's, a, it's big to you or mean a lot to you, but to the Jews, even today, this verse is like John 3.16. Every single Jewish child knows this verse. This is one of the most important moments in all of biblical history when God declares his name. Because it's actually the first time in the entire Bible where God describes himself. Moses says, show me who you are. And God says, this is who I am. It's profound and it's deep. And the writers of the Bible circle back to this passage over and over and over again dozens of times. From Moses to David to Jeremiah to Jonah, it's requoted, it's alluded to, it's prayed through, it's sung about. Jonah even complains about it. I know you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is ground zero for the theology of God. And it's also the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. So for the next five weeks, we're going to work through every single word. We're going to use it to build a steady, truthful, event, hope, uh, eternally relevant theology about the God that we serve. 
But before we do that, I want to put all my cards on the table. First thing is that much of what we're going to talk about here is not original to me. It comes from books and, and Bible teachers and preachers um, and the advice of some elders here and, and other ministers. Um, and if you want some of those resources, I can give it to you afterwards because really this is way too much material to share on, a, on any particular Sunday. And the second thing that's, that, that's important for me to mention is that um, preaching a series where I ask you to start from zero about your understanding of who God is, is terrifying. Because who am I? Who am I to reveal the character of the Almighty God? And so it's certainly a daunting task, but it's daunting because of what's at stake. I, I believe that this issue is the most important issue in our time. We have so, there used to be a time when the idea of who God was was pretty clear to people, and it was a choice whether or not we chose to follow him. But now what's beginning to happen in our society is that people are deciding that God is like something that he's actually not like. And this is so much more important than really anything that I could possibly be talking about. And so I feel like there's a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I feel like I'm excited for this study. And I hope, as you listening, that you would be a Berean. The Bible says that Bereans were of noble character because they examined the scriptures to see if what the preacher said was true. Would you do that? Would you make sure that what I'm saying is true? So let's do this thing. We're going to start this week, or this week the sermon is just going to be focused on these four words, the Lord, the Lord. It's interesting that when Moses um, asks God to show himself, that God says, I will proclaim my name. It's pretty cool that God has a name. I, I think that's kind of awesome. And just to clarify, God's name is not God. In the original Hebrew, the word the Lord, um, which is where we all saw it, would have been Yahweh. And since we're living in a time where names mean nothing, you know, like kids are named Apple or whatever, um, I saw one article of a child being named A-B-C-D-E, Absony. Um, anyway, it may seem unimportant, unimportant that God actually has a name, but, but in ancient times, your name was your identity. It was your destiny. It was the moniker and the truest thing about you. Uh, Michael P. Knowles, a, a Hebrew scholar, writes this. He says, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origins, birth, circumstances, or divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. And we see th this throughout the scriptures. You see that people's names are, are lined up to their identity or who they are. Isaac's name was Laughter. And the reason his name was Laughter is because Sarah had waited so long for a child. You know, uh, Jacob, and uh, Jacob's name was deceiver or heel grabber. You know, he was, he was constantly a deceiver. We see that in Joshua, his name is salvation. He brings the people to salvation, which is where we get Jesus' name from. Israel means to struggle or to wrestle with God, and we see that throughout the history of Israel. And, and so Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's asking, hey, God, would you show me who you are? And God says, I'll do you one better. I'll tell you my name. I'll tell you who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. Let's talk a little bit about that name. For the next 10 minutes are about to get super nerdy. So just bear with me. I promise I'll bring it all the way around. There'll be a payoff at the end. Um, but could you just give me something, like give me a clap or something? That would encourage me. Thank you. People online do the same thing. Thank you. Look, this is like a lot of material. So just hang on. It'll, I promise there'll be a payoff. 
In the first line in the Bible, what's the first line in the Bible? Do you guys know? In the beginning, what, what happened? God. In the beginning, God. That word there in, in the Hebrew is, is an interesting word. We'll get to it in just a second. But all we know in the very start of the Bible is that there's this creator. We don't exactly know much about him. He just creates things. He creates beautiful things, and he sits on the seventh day, and he, and he rests. He's a mysterious creator. And, and, and that word God there, for us, God is translated all throughout the Bible. But, but the fact is that like God, or rather, the Bible's not written in English. It's written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. And so there's all these different languages. And so there are all these different words. But we're trying to figure out how best to say it in English. But the first name for God ever in the Bible is actually not a name at all. It's just Elohim. You've heard this before. It's the title for God. And I don't want to go too far off the rails, but there's actually other characters in the Bible with this same title. You may not know this, but this is Psalm chapter 82. It says, God presides, that's, this is God, Yahweh God, presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. This word is Elohim. So if we were just using the word Elohim, it would say Elohim, this title, presides in the great assembly. He renders judgments among the Elohim. So he's saying, hey, hey, uh, there is other gods, heavenly beings. This name is used throughout the Bible to refer to other heavenly beings. Elohim is a title, not a name. And that makes sense because, well, for us in America, when we say God, people instantly think God of the Bible. Right? Like if you're walking around inviting someone, hey, do you know anything about God? They would think, he's talking to me from a Judeo-Christian standpoint. But if we were in like India where there are, as I mentioned before, a lot of gods, if I said God, they might say to me, which one? Because there's so many. And so in the time of the Bible, there were so many gods, and so it was clear that God started with the title, but then he became very much more specific when he started getting more personal with people. So, the, so later on in the book of Genesis, the creator, this Elohim, comes to Abraham. And again, we don't know a lot about him except he's a creator. He, he, he sort of like and is a, and destroyed people because of their sin, but he loves deeply. And he, 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 we don't really know a lot about him. And so he calls Abraham to leave his homeland, to go to a land uh, he will later receive as an inheritance, the Bible says. And, and Abraham is wondering, who are you? And God uses a new name. El Shaddai. You've heard this before also. El is a Canaanite god. He's actually the king of the Canaanite gods. Shaddai means almighty or most high. And so to relate to Abraham, Abraham's like, who are you? And God's like, I, you know El? You know who that is, yeah? I'm better than him. Cool, I'll follow you. <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of the way, the way this works. And so for much of the Bible, these are the two names we get until... The patriarchs start coming around, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and the rest. And then all of a sudden, they stop calling, they stop using that. Instead, they just start describing God as the God of Abraham. It's the God of Abraham. So which God are you talking about? It's the God that Abraham worships. Oh, the God of Abraham. Are you still with me so far? All right, awesome. Okay, good. This is great. I'm excited. All right. Um, but all of this changes, all of this changes when we get to Moses. Who is this God? He's a creator. He's mysterious. He's better than the other gods. Okay, got that. He's the God of that guy, Abraham. Oh, okay, cool. But, but what is he like? What is, it, what is he like? 
all of it changes with Moses. Moses is, you know, you know the story of Moses. He flees, you know, he, he's in a basket, whatever, right? He, he, uh, he raised, raised, um, in, uh, raised in Pharaoh's court and eventually kills somebody, gets sent off to, to, to Midian, is kind of wandering in the desert. And one day God's like in a bush and he's like, Moses, right? And, and it's burning, but it doesn't engulf in flames. And so God walks, or rather Moses walks over to God and, and, and he's in a bush. And all of a sudden, like, God's like, hey, look, there's people in slavery in Egypt and I want to set them free. I've seen the pain of your people. I'm, I'm with you. And, um, and, and the way that God refers to himself, he says this. Then he said, I am the God of your father. Look, I'm the one your dad worshiped. Okay, cool. The God of Abraham. I'm that. And so Moses and God have this interaction. You know the story already. But, but Moses, in the middle of it, asked this really interesting question. Suppose, uh, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and asks me, what is his name? Remember the value of names, right? It means something. Th- then what shall I, what shall I say? This is a fascinating question. This, also could be, this, this question could also be translated as, what is the meaning of your name? Who, who are you? Look, I know that you're the God of my fathers, but, but life is really challenging. I'm living in Midian. I, I, I don't know. You promised the homeland. I know the stories, but, but tell me who you are. Tell me who you are. What are you like? For the first time in the whole Bible, God says his name. God says to Moses, I am who I am. The English translation here is is, I am who I am, but the Jewish, the favorite Jewish version is I will be that I will be, or I will be what I will be. But either way, God is saying, I have always been who I am. Sure, you're wandering in the desert, and you're not sure, or rather, you're you're in the desert, and and like, you know, you're not happy to be there, but but you know the promises? You know those old promises I gave to Abraham? Those are still intact for you. I am who I am, and I will be what I am. I'm consistent, and I'm present. I'm shifting. I'm a staple. I'm stable, I'm forever, I am who I am, I will always be who I always am. Meaning if he's compassionate and gracious, he will always be compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, always. Gracious, always. Unchanging, steady, constant, undeterred. He is rock solid and nothing can change him. But how unlike the world we live in is that? Have you ever thought you knew somebody or thought you really trusted somebody deeply and it turns out that that's not the person you thought they were? You get an email, you get a phone call, you get a knock on the door, you discover that all their lives, basically they've been living a double life. When I was a kid, I was like, I don't know, must have been like nine or ten years old. Um, It was the first time I'd ever really experienced that. I had a baseball coach. And the baseball coach's son was, my, was one of my best friends. And, and so I was connected with him. I, I loved that, that baseball coach. I loved that baseball team. I, my best friend and I used to play all the time. He would coach us. He would throw ball, you know, throw, give us batting practice. And there was this great connection. It turns out that he had a whole other family. This is not a rare story. 
But when I was 10, I thought, wait, what? He was not who he was. He was somebody he pretended to be. But you've experienced this, right? You, you thought you knew somebody and actually your friend was wanted by the police. And you're like, oh, well, that stinks. You know, <laughs> you, know you, find, you hear a story. Oh, you find out they're a cheater. This is so common in human nature. But God is like, you know that, that quality of people? I'm nothing like that. I'm not faking. I'm not lying. There is no double life. Immovable, safe, constant. So, so God tells Moses his name and then tells him to go back to Egypt and conveys this to the Hebrews. He says this. He says, tell this. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, that's, that's Yahweh. We'll get to this in a second. The, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Then he says this. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, some of you may be confused. We have a whole bunch of different words here. We have Yahweh. Where did that come from? I am who I am, and then the Lord, all caps. So you were stuck with me. Now we're getting technical. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to make learning fun. Okay. In, in ancient Hebrew writing, there are no vowels. Well, there are some vowels, but let's imagine there are no vowels. Why would there be no vowels? Because if you're chiseling things on a stone, um, it'd be hard to add all the vowels, right? Like, there's a lot of vowels. So, so they just cut off the vowels in much of the words. So, so words would look like this. What is this word, you guys think? Boom! Worship! Right? It would look kind of something like this. How, how, about, how about this? Yes. All right, now we're going to get a little more modern. How about this one? Football! And how about this one? Go box! That's right. You, this is what reading ancient Hebrew was kind of like. Kind of like. And so when, when God says, I am has, say, say, I am has sent me. No, you don't have to say this. I'm sorry. <laughs> when God says to Moses, say to the people, I am has sent me. I should have clarified. It would be like this. Something like this. Yahweh has sent me. It's what scholars tr uh, call the tetragrammaton. There will be a quiz. Um, just kidding. Um, Yahweh is from the extract and actually from the exact same root as I am who I am. But it's actually in the third person. Don't want to talk about that. We could talk about that another day. But, but, but you can't process this word with no vowels. And so this Y-H-W-H is pronounced Yahweh. We think at least. Because we don't actually know what vowels fit in there. Most people agree that it's Yahweh. Um, but the reason we don't know is because those vowels were never written down. And then Hebrews stopped saying God's name. Why do you think? Oh, because of the Ten Commandments. Do not use the name of the Lord in vain. And so they're like, I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. And so over the years... As people grew afraid to say it, they began to change it. And so what eventually happened is they changed it to this thing, Hashem. So Hashem has sent me. Hashem means the name. The name has sent me. And eventually Hebrew people began to change and began to give, give God a brand new title, which is Adonai, which means the Lord. The Lord has sent me. 
And basically, English has, has continued to translate that from that point on. It's the Lord. So whenever you see all caps in the Bible, you're seeing some version of either Yahovah, which I'll explain in a second, or Yahweh. Now, really quick about Yehovah and Yahweh. Yehovah is, is um, the vowels from Adonai, which is Lord, and the consonants from Yahweh squished together. Yehovah. And now people say Jehovah, which is kind of funny, but whatever. All right, I said, did you stick with me? Everyone gets a prize. Yay. The prize is accolade from your fellow classmates. Well done. All right. So every time you read in all claps, Yahweh, it's you're naming the, reading the name of God. But here are some of these passages. They're staggering. You ready? Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. I am who I am. That is my name. And I, will, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Then they will know that my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord has formed it and established it. The Lord is his name. Why is this important? Well, because as I mentioned before, a name means something. And in us telling us his name, God is also introducing something about himself. Yahweh is a reminder to us that God is never going to change. That he's always present. That if he says something, he actually means it. That he will be who he has always been. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So let's conclude this with a discussion about Jesus. Because as the conversation about God's character became to be, uh, to, to be clear in my mind, I just felt like what's, what's clear in the scriptures is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this character. Really, the narrative arc of the Bible leads us, it's not a straight line, it's all the bends and turns, but it leads us exactly to Jesus. Remember what Moses asked for. What did Moses ask? I want to see your glory. I want to see your, your glory. And look at what Jesus says. This is John chapter 17. I actually want to encourage you to turn there because there's a little footnote that I want you to read. This is John chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus says. John 17 verse 6. It says, if you read the footnote, you're going to read the word. It says, I have revealed you. If you look at the footnote, you probably have a little A there. And you go to the bottom. The footnote says, your name. What is, what is Jesus saying? Oh, I have shown those people what you're like. I have revealed you to, these, to, to those whom you've gave, given me. Verse 26. I have made your name known to them and will continue to make your name known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He said, I came and I showed everybody what you're like. You want a human version of the creator God? Well, it's really easy. It's Jesus. You want to live? You want to act like the creator God? Oh, yeah, yeah, easy. Live like Jesus. In Jesus, we get a clear, not a new, but a clear glimpse of what God is actually like. Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God, or God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The, the answer to Moses' prayer, show me your glory, is found in the person of Jesus. 
Show me what you're like, God. I'll do one better. I'll come down. I'll live life. And you'll be able to pick apart every single thing that I'm like. And you'll find me in the life of my own son. And the early Christians were so quick to pick this up. That the gravity of, of that God was, that Jesus was God's embodiment. And, and there's a really interesting statement. There was a slogan that the early Christians used to say. And it's actually a statement that we still say today. In this church, we say it all the time. When people are being baptized, people are asked, what's your good confession? And we say something. What do we say? Jesus is Lord. And our ancestors, brothers and sisters, would literally die over this statement. Christians were burned alive, thrown into the mouths of wild beasts, nailed to crosses. Because of this one phrase, this phrase has some gravitas to it, and why? Well, one, because the Latin word for, for Lord is kairos, or I'm sorry, the, the Greek word for Lord is kairos, so it would be, um, and, and there was already a kairos, it would have been the Caesar. The Caesar would have been the one, and so that made all the people mad, but there was actually something more important. More importantly for the Jews, this was the Greek word, Lord, kairos, was the Greek word that the Hebrews translated Yahweh. So when so when the Greeks talked about God, the Father, they said he was the Lord. And so for the first century Christians, it, did not, it, would, not have stepped, it would not have been an uh, oversight to realize that they were actually saying that Jesus is Yahweh. See, Jesus is not a newcomer to the story. That's a wrong and dangerous belief. And actually leads to a bunch of twisted theologies. The father was not a grumpy old man in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he didn't become a Christian. You know, he's a form. That's not what happened at all. Remember what he says, I am who I am. And here's why this is so important, church. No culture changes God's character. No culture changes God's character. It does not alter God's word. No new movement can change God's way. What Jesus was for and against is still what Jesus is for and against. Do you get this? God is still who he's always been. It doesn't matter how much pressure is put on him to change. He ain't changing. Culture can change Fine, but God's word stays the same forever. Don't you for a moment believe that culture is changing what God says? It's a gross misreading of the story of the Bible. See, Jesus is the long-awaited human coming of Yahweh. He is the glory of God on the top of Mount Sinai. Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? Jesus is is the answer to Moses' Moses' request to see the glory of God because Jesus is the glory of the Father. Now let me tell you how this relates to you and then we'll end. There is so much pressure in our culture, so much pressure in our culture to alter the picture of God from the scriptures into a new kind of like whatever other picture of God. And that's both on the right and on the left. To create him into something that he's never been. But do you want a God that changes with the culture anyway? Like what a terrible God to worship. So when he came on the scene, he says, look, my name is clear. I am the same. I am who I am. 
He is, will be, and is to come. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What broke God's heart in Egypt breaks God's heart in America. And what makes God angry two millennia ago makes God angry today. We cannot reimagine God into our image. We must not. It's a dangerous practice, and it will lead to our own personal and spiritual destruction. I know this is heavy, but stay with this series. Over the next four weeks, I'm going to try to pick apart the beauty of who God is. And hopefully by the end of it, you at least have a framework to build a new theology, or at least uh, um, support an existing theology about the character and the presence of a beautiful God. Who is the Lord? I have an answer for you. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We cannot construct God into a 21st century America. We must take him at his word. This time we're going to pray for our communion. Father, we come before you and we're grateful for the opportunities to be able to pray to you, to know that you're an eternal God, that you didn't just um, come yesterday. You're not a new fad. Um, there, there, is no, uh, there is nothing new about you, Father. You are who you've always been. And Lord, we love that about you. We embrace that about you, Lord, because often we don't even know what's true. We have no standard for what's right or what's wrong or any of those things, Lord. We're often just trying to figure those things out. But God, I do pray, Lord, that, that as we consider who we think you are, that we will take you at your word, that we'll think about who you are, your name, that you're personal, that you care about us individually. And Lord, that at the end of life, you redeem those, but you also do not leave the guilty unpunished. Father, we thank you for Jesus who, on, who hung on a tree on Calvary to show the world what you were like, that you would be willing to die for your people so that we could have life. Father, you are a gracious God. Thank you for Jesus. Father, we pray that as we eat the bread that represents your body and the juice that represents your blood, that we'll be reminded of the great power there is in knowing that you, in fact, are clear in the scriptures. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.